out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest this week. It's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter and very creative type. It is the one and only Jeanette Napolitano, one-time member of Concrete Blonde and has now got a solo career and has got new material out and about. So this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat about this and that, which is quite fascinating, um, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jeanette, it's over to you. Well, I had... Uh, <laughs> It's it's a legend and it's a legend in the family lore. Um, is that when I was about I don't think it was the year that the Wizard of Oz came out. I, th- I think it was only <clears throat> I was only six years old then. I think I'm not quite sure the math. I have to figure out yet. But I think the Wizard of Oz had just come out, or it was around then. And I was five or six years old. I was very young, and someone owed my dad money, and they couldn't pay him, but they gave him an upright piano. And so um, after I saw The Wizard of Oz, I got up and I went over and I played Somewhere Over the Rainbow on a piano like it was nothing, like I'd known it all my life. And my parents just freaked out, you know, they didn't know what the heck was going on. And so my dad, um, bless him, I, every day, he's just he's still with me, uh, my best advisor, <laughs> always will be. But he bought me a guitar, and he uh, he bought me my first guitar and a record that was play guitar with the Ventures. Talk about the sixties. You want to talk about the sixties? Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> so play guitar with the Ventures. It was great. You know, it was a vinyl record, and they you know they tune you up. They go E. Here's an E. Dong dong. You know, it's it, with that guitar. You know that that uh, twang. You know. And it's, uh, it was great. And so I really, um, I really took to it, you know, it was, uh, I, I took to it really hard. And so that was probably the, the pivotal, the first pivotal one. The other one, I had an aunt who actually um, was super cool. My aunt Sharon, I just thought she was damn cool. My brother's sister and she wore black turtlenecks and she lived in London for a while and she knew Tom Jones and, you know, she, she, <laughs> <laughs> And she she was super cool, and she had a really great record collection. You know, she was really big on the huge on the Stones. <laughs> she had a notebook, excuse me. She had a notebook that just had Brian Jones written all over it. You know, she was younger. She was my father's younger sister, and um, and she was just really into it. So I thought she was the coolest. So I wanted to be just like her, and I was very into. And my parents, my dad, you know, he had all the Italian. Um, American stuff, you know, because his father is Italian, his grandfather's Italian, and so he had all the, you know, Dean Martin and the um, uh, the Sinatra stuff, and uh, he loved the Western, the wild Western music as well from Western movies. Johnny Cash, he was a huge Johnny Cash fan, and so that was all in the house. My mother loves Gershwin and country music. Um, and so she always had, she always had that, that big, big ass stereo, you know, with the big cabinets and the lid that opened up and I used to be able to crawl under there. Actually, I was so small and just listen to the records that she listened to all day, you know? Yes. So it, 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 there's always, it's always been, been around me, but my father had an issue when I graduated high school and that's what I wanted to do. He really had an issue with it on an old country level. 
like, well, no, that that's that, you know, no, no, you know, you should, you should actually, you know, you need to start having kids and you need to get married and all that sort of old, old uh, school stuff. And no, that was not at, at all what I wanted to do, you know, um, at all. And then I got a job when I was 19 or 20. Yep. I met a carpenter who was working on a studio for Leon Russell in Burbank. And um, he said, you know, I'm working for Leon Russell. And I went, wow, that's like way too cool. And he goes, yeah, you want to see the studio? I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so we went and I actually filled out a job application and I got hired. And so I worked for Leon for a couple of years. And that was, as uh, there are no words to describe that experience, really. Um, the people that were coming and going, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm in the desert, it's dry. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the people that were coming and going, and uh, just Leon in general, you know, as, a, as an artist, um, as ahead of his time as he was, and the things that he was doing, you know, he was saying the future of music was in video, and he was, he was building this mobile unit, and, uh, you know, the people that were coming around to, um, and this guy who was in the studio, who was hanging around named Roger Lynn, was working on this drum machine, you know. Um, there were things going on. And so uh, it was really an incredible experience. And that was pivotal because uh, his history is nothing to argue with. And I also worked at Gold Star Studios where um, Stan and Dave Gold, I actually spent my birthday uh, with Dave last year. who was He's almost 90, I think. And um, that's where they did all the hits. Herb Alpert, uh, Jerry Moss actually just passed away. Herb Alpert did all his old stuff there and the Beach Boys and uh, all kinds of stuff. So I, got, I was working there for a while. Um, and that was, a, that was a high honor for me because that, that was a legendary studio. I mean, the, Sonny and Cher, Phil Spector, yes. he used to call, you know, he used to call in Phil with that little voice, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, I've, I've had, I don't know, I couldn't, the, the, the first one, one is definitely my dad getting me a guitar yes. you know, when I was a, very young. And that, that just kind of kicked everything off. I, I'll bet he regretted it. But uh, in the end, he didn't, of course. But, uh, but I think there for a little while there, he's like, no, what have <laughs> I created? You know, it, it, it really freaked him out, you know, yes. to tell you the truth. I, spent some time in the talking heads. I spent some time who had to call themselves the heads uh, when I was with them, but we, we uh, played, we did a tour and a record and um, uh, my dad came and saw us and our first show was in New Orleans and he absolutely, he just didn't get it at all. He just, it freaked him out completely. He's just like, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> Cause, uh, yes, because there was a song which obviously Leon did, which I mean, I'm so sure everyone mentions it, a song for you, which was quite one of the greatest songs of all time. You must have been, been close to somebody who wrote a song like that. Yes, it does. it must have a massive influence on you. It was huge because he had no boundaries, boundaries, limits, or rules, you know, and he would, um, he'd, he'd, just, he'd just be up, you know, and he was famously uh, insomniac, and he'd be up in the middle of the night driving around and just coming. You had to be on call for him for 24 hours, basically. You know, if Willie Nelson was in town and they wanted to spend two days straight in the studio, then you better be there 
for two days straight or whatever, and you wanted to be there, so it wasn't even it was like a problem or anything, you know. No, absolutely. But, um, it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. It was a pretty special place in time and, to be, um, and so I, I really, uh, it's very, very special to me for sure. And he was he was really really ahead of his time. He's not like he wasn't like the old uh, hippie everybody thought he was. Far from it. As a matter of fact, he did acid with the guy who built the Integratron that you were at. <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. But then I guess everyone gets quite sort of, I don't know, sp- spiritual. But it is difficult not to be a bit spiritually sort of um, transported in that area that you, you're living in at the moment, isn't it? Because um, the landscapes and the desert is, is quite something, isn't it, for free in the mind and spirit? Well, but it also has a sense of eternity that is very reassuring and it's very peaceful and you know because what is eternal but the sun and the moon and the heavenly bodies and the things that jot around in the (laughs) tic-tacs yes absolutely so when you got to sort of 16 did you leave school at that age or were you work then was this the period that you were in the Um, studio I, i had a i had a hard time in school but i did graduate high school um, but I ran away for the first time at 16 because my parents were getting divorced around that time, and it was it was very bad. And so uh, I I just could not wait to get away. And then they did split up, and then uh, things got worse. And and um, then I just really got out. I got married when I was 18, and I was out of the house as soon as I could. And and um, I saw that I really wanted to continue art because that's what I was getting all the gifted child awards for and everything. And I went to UCLA when I was, I think, 12 on some kind of scholarship. And that was what I, I was intending to do. But I didn't see, you know, we weren't rich. And after the divorce and everything, I really felt that my responsibility, you know, was to take my dad's place, actually. Um, and uh, and take care of my my family, you know. And, and it wasn't going to cut it being an artist, and it wasn't going to cut it just having you know some kind of day job or, or you know. And, and we couldn't afford. I, I I still to this day am self conscious about not having a college education, but I've I've more than made up for it on my own with studying various things and visiting <clears throat> various museums uh, you know around the world that i would have never been able to see if i hadn't been in a band you know and, yes uh, and so i um i uh i knew but but when i sang i owned it i uh, the room everybody stopped talking when i sang when i would open my mouth and i thought well if i've got that going for me then that's where i'm gonna go you know i'm, mm. I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna chase that and, you know, I played guitar. I played a lot of in- instruments. I, w- I went to elementary school with the Picaro brothers, Steve and Mike and Jeff, who ended up uh, forming Toto. And uh, their dad, yeah, their dad, Jeff Picaro, was a very famous. As a matter of fact, he worked at Gold Star a lot. He played on all the Sunny and Cher records and all the Herb Al- a lot of Herb Albert records. Uh, um, he's a percussionist, very famous percussionist, like the old TV themes, like for... For, for Mission Impossible, and uh, he, he was percussionist on all that old old uh, 60s uh, American TV-like stuff, you know. And so the sons, you know, just grew up, and they were amazing musicians. So it's like, you know, Steve taught me how to play tambourine, I think, when we were in the third grade. 
you know, so they, but I didn't have, excuse my voice, <coughs> but um, <clears throat> they didn't have, I didn't, you know, I had to work basically. I didn't have an in to the business like, like that. And um, it was, that was brilliant to be inspired by that. Cause when I saw Steve, Steve Picaro, who have, you know, I have, uh, I saw not too long ago, actually, but he, uh, he when I saw him play with, with uh, Gary Wright, I saw him play with Gary Wright uh, when we the, the summer after graduation, and I just went like, screw it, man. If Steve can do that, I can do that. <laughs> and so uh, I, I said, forget it. I'm, I'm, this is what I do. I mean, it was strange. It was a foreign concept to me since I was very young, like the third grade, that people would... I mean, so-and-so obviously is good at this. You know, Mary is good at this. John is good at this. Doug is good at this. Yet they grow up and they do something else that they don't even like for a living. I mean, that's a lot of your life to waste, not doing what you're obviously born to do. I, I never understood that uh, concept, you know. So it was, you know, to say it was a... a it, it, to say it is a tough uh, a tough haul, it doesn't really matter if the music drives you. It doesn't matter how tough things get, you know? Yes. Well, I did an interview with a couple of people recently who sort of decided they just, they weren't going to have any particular home. They were just going to sort of, because they just wanted to stay true to their art. Um, his name was, was it Alexander Hack, Hacker, Hacky, who was in the um, that German band, which I always mispronounce, um, Estrels and Neubarten, that's the one. I think it was as close as I'm ever going to get at this time of night, actually. But, um, oh, yes. Oh, that's right. I forget there's a time difference there. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so when when sort of you got to that 70, 77, 78 period, I mean, obviously punk was happening, but you were sort of probably about you know, 18, married with a lot of responsibility. How did the punk movement sort of, um, I don't know, develop into your consciousness? I'm glad you asked. Because this 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 mean, meant a lot to me because I had a, I, I had a problem household. I wasn't connected in any way, and I wasn't supported. In uh, I didn't have a family that encouraged me. It wasn't like they were bad people. It's just that they didn't know, and so I didn't have any way to do what I wanted to do. Punk when punk came along, and I was late to discover that I was working. I was I was taking. I was in Hollywood quite a lot. My aunt lived in Hollywood at the time. She was also a dancer on Shindig, which was very cool uh, on the Shindig show. And Leon was a piano player, so it's weird. All roads, all roads connect. <laughs> but she uh, lived in Hollywood, and when I take the bus over to Hollywood after school or whatever on weekends or whatever, we'd roller skate on, on Hollywood Boulevard. And my parent—I was born in Hollywood actually because my parents lived there when I was born. But but somebody broke in uh, in the middle of the night. That's another famous story: is my dad running down. Uh, Sunset Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard, I can't remember, with a gun after the guy who broke in in his underwear with a gun is going to shoot him. But uh, anyway, I, when I was in Hollywood, I decided that's where it's happening. As soon as I can live here, I am going to live here. Uh, but because we moved to the valley after the guy broke in. So I, I went to elementary school there and, I, and uh, high school there. And I said, as soon as I can, I'm, I'm moving over here and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be over here. And um, Hollywood was where punk landed in uh, in L.A., yes. you know, first. And so um, it was all going on and uh, and it was it was happening. It was just happening. And so by this time, this is like, you know, what, the early, early 80s, late 70s here anyway. I know it was earlier over there, <clears throat> but I but this gave me the freedom to play. 
I didn't have to feel, you know, I wasn't like the jazz session guy, uh, you know, like over the hill, like in the valley that everybody wanted to grow up to be. That wasn't my jam. That wasn't what I felt like I was going to do. And and it wasn't like it just it just it wasn't my jam. You know, it just it just wasn't my thing. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel. I wanted to, you know, I liked I liked art, all that shit. So, um, so I so I picked up and I, we couldn't keep it back. I met Jim Mankey working at uh, Leon. Leon worked for Jim too, and so everybody there was a musician, and everybody after hours or sometime, not everybody really, but but. Uh, you know, everybody was a musician because, you know, that's who would want to work for Leon the most is musicians who had various skills. You know, Jim's an electrical engineer and, you know, everybody did different things. Um, but 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 most most people who worked for Leon were musicians really on the side. So we'd get get we we'd get in the studio at night and just do a bit of writing and messing around. And it was obvious that our chemistry musically was very good. And so uh, we ended up, you know, Leon got divorced and moved to uh, back to uh, he moved to Nashville initially, or I can't remember where he moved to. I think he moved to Nashville, and uh, he wanted, you know, a lot of people had the, you know, you could either go or you could stay, and uh, and I was not going to go. I wasn't going to go to. I wasn't going to go to the South. I'd already been there, you know, when I was married. Uh, I was in the South, and I didn't. I didn't like it at that time. Uh, yes. From LA and all that, all the you know the whole Southern the racism and everything was very very strange and foreign to me. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't for me at the time at all. So uh, I wasn't going to go back. I, I and once I saw you know I just didn't want to go. I just didn't want to go. I want by by then I wanted to do my own thing anyway. And so Jim uh, Jim and I you know both stayed behind and then we decided well it's time you know let's get together and try to do something and so we did but we couldn't keep we couldn't keep people at all we, we've been through drummers and you know we couldn't find a bass player um at all who wanted to stay we didn't have a deal we didn't have personnel we didn't have anything because we weren't doing what other people were doing you know we were just doing we were different and uh, nobody knew what to do with us and so I said, well, you know, the police were out by then. The police had started to happen. And uh, the fact that Sting, you know, was singing and playing bass um, inspired me. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I had a friend who I met in Hollywood when I was on my lunch break from working at Gold Star Studios. And she was she was hardcore. She was a, she was a punk. But, you know, and she really, you know, she turned me on to a lot of stuff that I ended up really, really loving, you know, like the Stranglers and you know, uh, all kind, all kinds of that early dark wave stuff. You know, Susie and the Banshees and Pill. You know, and and all of that. And uh, and so I was really, I was hooked. I thought this is really cool. There's soul here. You know. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of soul. And the Clash. You know, and I ended up knowing Paul, who was a, dar- a darling, awesome dude. And. Uh, uh, so I thought, well, I'll just pick it up and just play it, you know. And I play by ear anyway. That's how I play everything. Much to the frustration of a lot of people along the way. Yes. But um, but uh, I just I, I just I just started to write what I could play, and uh, and that was it. And so it was terrifying, you know. It was, but it, now it's 
I, I feel funny if I'm singing and I'm not playing. Yes, bass, absolutely. You know? And did you get kind of influence of people like, you know, you mentioned Peel, there was, you know, people like Jar Wobble, and then there's people, slightly different bass players. I saw Jar Wobble live at the freaking Camden Palace, I think it was. Um, uh, yeah, the Camden, Camden Palace, yeah. Is that the place that burned down? Possibly, yes. And and what about other bass players? I mean, in the 70s, we grew up with Susie Quattro, who was very famous with her bass. And then, oh, Susie uh, was great. We were way into Susie in Hollywood. Glam was big in Hollywood then, uh, huge, because Rodney Bingenheimer had his English disco. Oh, um, yes. There was really nothing English about it. It was just on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> but... Uh, but he, he and Kim Fowley and everybody used to hang out there. It was all about glam. I mean, you know, the whiskey was all about glam, you know, back in, in those days. And you had, I mean, that's where that's where everybody played the first time that they would come here. It would be the Sunset Boulevard, the Roxy, the whiskey. And, uh, and so you had, you know, you had punk in those venues. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was full on. I mean, the first time. And then, and then, of course, you had great punk bands inspired by that. You had Black Flag playing around here. You had an X. You had the Cramps. You had. Um, it was very diverse. It was. The punk scene in L.A. That's that's one thing I did like about it. You know, you had a lot of from every. Well, L.A. of course is a diverse city. You've got you know every different neighborhood has a different. You know, it's a barrio. It's a you know it's a different district. You know, it's it's um, and everybody added their flavor to it. You know, that's the scene that. Los Lobos came out of the punk scene because where else, you know, were they going to play this stuff, you know? So everybody really mixed it up, you know, and it was it was very, very diverse. It was really cool. Yes, absolutely. And then there was people like the, was it the Avengers who supported the Sex Pistols on that famous tour in 78? And then people like Alice Bag as well. And then, um, yeah, yes. Alice, Alice just, just played, actually. She's, uh, she she plays in L.A. still. She's, she's still, she's still with it. I think she's got a new album too. Check she, it out. She has got a new album. So as, as the sort of the eighties progressed, which was always an exciting period, um, yes, because because <laughs> it was kind of for for us, you know, Thatcher gets in in seventy nine, which is a kind of then we have Thatcherism and the Conservatives, and then we have the Falkland War in this country, which is always kind of kind of a, an emotive moment, and then there's the miners' strike and huge amount of unemployment and unrest and. Um, and Green and Common, we all thought we were going to be nuked, you know, and obliterated. So there was a little bit of like a defeated attitude. So um, there was a kind of a big kind of, you know, scene, that post-punk scene that you mentioned as well that developed. And then from there, we started getting bands like The Smiths and that indie sound and U2. That's, that's where your, um, your Ian and uh, um, I can't think of the name fast enough, but, you know, the who, uh, who hung himself. Oh um, yes, Ian Curtis from Joy Division. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you had that was a it was gloomy. That was gloomy. You know, it was just a gloomy time. You know, it was very gloomy. So then, as the sort of the mid eighties approached, and and what did you have another kind of life or career or not a like career change, but a life change? Did you, you know, with the commitment to the band, did that sort of influence everything around you? Well, the eighties. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, you have a contract, don't you? You know, you have to deliver four or five albums or whatever it is. And um, and that's what I wanted to do. So I wanted to do it. 
you know, and I was getting better. I was getting more confident in, in what I was doing. And um, I don't know. I, I've taken a lot of breaks, you know. I mean, if that's, if that's what, you're, what you mean. Um, but I, you know, it's always been there. So it's nothing that I've been really conscious of, you know, and I think about that. But I, you got to have a sense of balance in life. And when, uh, you know, there were a lot of problems, you know, there were a lot of behind the scenes problems and a lot of personal problems in the band. And it was yes. just really grinding. And it was a lot of a lot of some financial fuckery that was going around. And we had to get out of that. And there's there's always some legal problems. When you, if you're in a band, you get to a certain point and, and, and you're going to have legal problems or you're going to find out somebody's been ripping you off or you're going to find out you signed a shitty deal. You're going to find out something like that. And, <laughs> and, and, and the whole, you're, gonna, you're just going to because it's called paying your dues. And, uh, and that's what's going to happen. You'll find out, you know, you've been ripped off by your manager who you thought was your buddy since you were 12, whatever it is. But um, if, you, if, if you get through that, then you're cool, yes. you know, and the only way you get through that is if you're in it for the right reasons. So when you don't hear about a band anymore, it's because they just get, 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 get past that, that hurdle because everybody, it, it happens, you know, and if, if, if for no other reason, it's because so many changes in the industry in the last 20 and 30 years, you know what I mean? There's, there's, there are things that didn't exist that nobody provided for, you know, CDs came along and now the digital stuff comes along and like the whole, the whole industry screwed up and artists take it real personal. Like, well, wait, we got, you know, I mean, you really got to stay on this stuff to make sure that, you know, your income streams are there and this and that and everything else. So things had started to change on that level in the eighties and that changed a lot. You know, that changed everything. I remember when CDs came out and I was, I wasn't happy because I wasn't happy because the artwork was so small and, you know, really limited to what you could do. And graphically you had to have a whole different eye for things. And now, you know, you got the computer and it's many things. So it's just, it's just rolling through the changes in, in, in an industry, like any industry you're in, you know, and a lot of people, a lot of people can't, I mean, to this day, you know, I remember when Pro Tools came out, which was the best thing in the world for me because I was paying somebody a hundred dollars, you know, an hour to do it. And I'm like, forget this. It's, you know, I, I, I can do this myself and I really enjoy it. And I did do it myself. I taught myself all that stuff, but I know artists that didn't want anything to do with digital. I know, I know engineers, you know, a lot of the old timers, they didn't want anything to do with digital, but you know, the comet's coming and you can either, you know, you can, you can either take a ride on it or you can just, you know, <laughs> get smacked on the head you know what i mean <laughs> yes so, that's a that's a very good for, yes so with you signed to irs records was that because that at the time they they obviously was you know it was miles copeland who had okay. um who had managed the police obviously because of his brother being in it as well and um and then he sort of had rem and and the wall of voodoo and various other bands had did you did you have many people who wanted to sign the band at that stage or was it was it kind of an obvious one that IRS was the band, uh, the label you wanted to be on? Did you uh, read Miles's book? He 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 came out. He came out with a book called "My Life in the Music Business." I did. <laughs> did you read it? I've 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 skipped. I've I've flicked through it actually because um, a couple of years ago I got a copy of it, and um, so you you get mentioned in that book, don't you? Quite a bit. I do, I do, and I helped him with it. Actually, I helped him remember some stuff. But I, there's, there's a couple of. I'm very proud. I'm proud of myself. I made the index. I actually made the index of the book. So, 
that should tell you that it's worth reading the part the part about me <laughs> <laughs> yes so so did you help him with that bit that he mentions that he was quite scared of you he was and and yeah because well he, he hit me up and he goes i'm working out. it was during covid and he goes I'm, I'm i'm working on a book he goes do you have anything good uh, my memory is of what it used to be. And so, yeah, I told him, I said, you know, do you remember? You know, they wouldn't let me make a video for Joey. And I was staying in, in London at the time. And um, I, I was, I, we were pretty desperate. It was our third record and it was really a, a lot of pressure. We had, we were working with Chris Tangerides. We were recording in London. Um, it was the third record. A lot was hinging on it. It was the first under an EMI distribution that was very important. So, you know, there was pressure on and they wouldn't they wouldn't make a video and I was sitting there in the office and when he told me we wouldn't make it, it wasn't Miles, it was the guy that ran the label, Steve. And I he said no and I, I opened I said, How much they have I don't know if you know the are you familiar with the IRS office in London? No, but um I've just I've just no it's, I'm... it's in a building it's in a, it's in a Victorian building called Bugle House. Okay. And uh, we used to see Mark Allman walk by every day on the way to his club gig. It was really cool. But uh, he, but uh, it's called Bugle House, and it has it has these Victorian stained glass windows in the front. And I basically, I said, I just looked straight at him and I said, how much? It was sixty, it's sixty thousand pounds. I think was our, our our budget for for the video. And I said, how much will it cost you to replace those windows, Steve? <laughs> Excellent bargaining. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that, the video for Joey never would have been made. You know. Yes. And did you slightly smile when he mentioned going to meet you? Because you say, "Let's settle this once and for all." And um, and when he goes to the mill, he he packs a knife just because he's scared of you. I I I. I rolled on the floor on the floor when he when i when i read that when he when he when i read that i read it in one day he sent it to me he sent me a signed copy which was very sweet and uh and i read it in one day i just thought it was an amazing book i mean just everything and uh and uh when i read that he put a knife in his pocket because it was meeting him in a, in a bad neighborhood i i believe it was musso and franks that was meeting him at it's one of the most legendary restaurants in hollywood right on hollywood boulevard if that and that's a if that's a bad neighborhood miles you need to get it <laughs> no, I, I, he's getting two stories mixed up because we did meet him in a really bad neighborhood in the midst of a, con, a contract conflict um and yeah i guess he puts he puts knives in his pocket when he comes to see me i don't know <laughs> i guess so uh, I, I, you know, is it my breath? I have no idea. I just, you know, I mean, what's the deal, Miles? You know, so uh, yeah, it's a good book. But anyway, yes, um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. He started well. He, he, um, I did not know. Well, I always was a fan of IRS. I, I thought it was a very cool label, and that was a good thing to be on. And uh, is a cool label, a label that you could see the label and know there was something cool on it because that. You know, having that reputation is priceless, you know, and when, especially then when you had guys that were going to play your records at a radio station and they're looking forward to whatever IRS puts out. That was a good a good reputation to have. And not everybody really had that. They were very cool. I mean, you know, it was a cool label, yes. you know, in, in, in L.A. at the time. And nobody understood us. Nobody understood a, a, a front front woman playing bass. Nobody got it. None of the major labels got it. And we did do demos for. Um, Electra, I think it was, and um, oh God, CBS, and um, 
everybody wanted to try to, we're trying to mold us into kind of something, but they didn't want somebody, you know, CBS wanted me to fire the guys all together. And I just wasn't going to do that because I knew we sounded good. You know, yes. I knew we all knew what we were doing. And, uh, and so I ended up making, you know, I just ended up making the record ourselves and then, um, uh, uh, sent it. As a matter of fact, our first review, it was on cassette tape. And I, when I was working at Gold Star, there was a newsstand on Hollywood Boulevard. It isn't there anymore. It hasn't been there for a long time, unless they restored it. I don't know. But um, uh, I used to get uh, Melody Maker oh, at a, yes. at a newsstand on my, on my lunch break, and uh, which was imported, and it was a big deal. And so um, a, a woman named Helen Fitzgerald used to write for Melody Maker. And uh, one day I'd sent it to, because um, to, they did demo tapes. They had, had she reviewed demo tapes. And I sent it, and um, I opened that paper, and I'll be damned if, it, you know, Helen Fitzgerald didn't have Dream Six, which was what the band was called at the time. And, um, and she said, across the pond in a wee package comes a little cassette. It was, it was really cool. It was a really cool review. And I ran back to work. I was. I, you know, that feeling I'll never forget in my life. It was yes. just amazing, you um, know. No, well, it, it's kind of those great moments. No, but when, um, yeah, when that book came out with Miles, I did, I did actually do an interview with him, but him, I didn't mention that particular episode, but he was talking about various other bands and obviously his kind of relationship with R.E.M. Oh, yeah, that's right, and them going to Warner's. And oh, then, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then the Wall of Voodoo as well and those kind of issues. Oh, and, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and then he's kind of... Because I can remember him in the 80s being a little bit smug about his kind of business and his kind of success. And and then, you know, and he says in the interview that, you know, he went and bought a castle in France and that's where, where things start going wrong when you buy a castle in France. So he was quite modest. Oh, uh, oh I think, I think, I think uh, he was controversial way before the castle in France. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, there's a quote in the book that's really funny. Um, and I think, I, I, I can't say for sure, but I want to say, say that it, um, it came from Bill Graham you know, who's a legendary concert promoter. Of course, he's passed away, but he was legendary in San Francisco during the 60s, of course. Bill Graham, for those who don't know who it is, Graham, Bill Graham Productions is still around, yes. um, but he's passed away. But he's, he's, his biography, if you can see it, is really amazing. But there's a, a passage in the book where he, you know, and his brother, see, Miles, so Miles' brother, um, Ian, ran FBI, which was the uh, booking arm, yes. which was the booking agency. They had REM and, you know, the Go-Go's and they had everybody. Um, and then there was IRS records. And then there were uh, there. And I think that was it. I think it was FBI and IRS. Um, anyway, so he and, and yeah, so him and Ian basically were power players, like in a big way. You know, they had all these acts that were huge. And uh, and Bill Graham. Shouting of you, Copeland, think you're God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could imagine the, the egos must have been horrendous. But as the 80s progressed, it was kind of an interesting period because, you know, obviously I was a massive indie pop fan and loved the Smiths. But then, sort of 87, 88, thing, the music scene changes quite a lot. There's the kind of the, the, I don't know, ecstasy comes along, there's a bit of a dance scene, then there's this Seattle grunge scene. How did, as an artist, how did you navigate these kind of sort of realising, navigate this period when you realise that the music scene started to change again and there's other bands that are, are appearing as well? Well, you know, once again, it's, it's cycles, isn't it? You know, I mean, if you're in it for that, 
that's another thing when another when a lot of bands break up it's like because it's not happening or nobody's coming or whatever well you know then you don't have enough glue to keep yourself keep it together or keep going and once again if it's not for the right reasons then you don't have it and it's arguable whether we did ride it out that well or not but when i we i think we were actually on tour of europe when um pearl jam w uh, came out and they were they were one of the opening bands and that's when moshing became um fashionable i'll say i guess and i didn't like it and i don't like it it triggers bad things in me it upsets me and the the you know i listened to the the first responders who are always on standby concerts and stuff, you know, talk about it. They would talk about, they would get excited about like the mosh pit gigs. And I didn't want mosh pits at my gig. I, I, I didn't, I just felt like it, it, I could be anybody up there. It doesn't matter. So when the grunge thing started, um, as much of a fan I was as a couple of the band, and Nirvana was obviously the standout of that whole scene, by the way. I mean, you could right away see that, you know, it was great, which was great and is great. Um, but it, and it was actually good because it was good for us because they were a guitar band, you know, it was all about guitars. And in the 80s, when we started, it was not about guitars. It was about Flock of Seagulls. It was about synths, you know, it was about you know, um, I mean, you know, Berlin, you know, who's awesome. Um, but that was, you know, it was not about us. We were freaks because we were a guitar band, you know. Um, but the what the grunge things did, it kind of brought guitars really uh, back in. Well, punk brought guitars back in, really. But uh, obviously. <laughs> but uh, but they, then these kids who listen, you know, then it's a cycle. These kids listen to records or their parents listen to punk records and then, then they hear punk records and and they start to play, and once again, punk had done its done its uh, its work, and it, it done its work here, and left. And people were picking up instruments that didn't give a crap if they knew how to play them right or not. They were just playing them, and that's what it was all about. And grunge kind of, you know, was the next level of that, really, in terms of what the evolution, you know. Yes, absolutely. And then, yes, I know it's it's a kind of a, a tricky one actually. And keeping a lineup, how did how did that sort of work you know during that period because obviously well, the, best, the best thing i mean the best thing with us uh the, and i just saw him actually i just saw roxy's last gig uh in uh, uh last tour uh well i don't want to say it's their last tour but the 50th anniversary tour in um in uh la i just saw paul i was really happy to see paul thompson but when paul thompson of roxy music joined the band because oh we were talking about personnel things yeah that's a merry-go-round but um we were Going to tour with Sting, I think, yeah, and we, no, we were going to make the record, and we, we were going to make the record, uh, Bloodletting record, in uh, London with Chris Tangerides, and um, we were playing the Borderline in London, and uh, we were over there to rehearse and play and everything, and Harry Reshikoff, who was our first drummer, we had a lot of problems with, um, it was it, we, challenges, you know, just he had his own challenges with, with, you know, drugs and things like that, which is not uncommon. Mm. We've all had, had our issues with our own things. And so, but it was really, it was in the way and it was a problem. It was a massive problem. And so we, that was the record that we were supposed to make. And it was our third record. It was an important record. And um, once again, it was the EMI honeymoon record, as they called it, because it was the first one with IRS. And it couldn't, we had to do it. We had to do it. We had a job to do, you know, 
if it was kind of a make or break situation almost. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, and so we um, get on a plane to go to London or whatever, and Harry's not on it. And that was it. And I, you know, I kind of had the strike three thing in my head anyway. And I talked to our manager and said, you know, if he misses that plane, he's out of there. I don't care what happens. We can't go in the studio and, you know, be wondering where he is and waiting. And if he's in jail, like happened in Australia, or if, you know, he's, you know, I can't, you know, can't worry about that shit. And so, um, he showed up right after soundcheck, I think, or right, or at doors or something for that show. Um, and uh, we fired him the next day, put him on a plane and sent him home. And it just so happened that Paul Thompson's wife, or girlfriend rather, knew Chris Tangerini's wife, Jane. And they had all come to the show. So Paul was at the show. And Paul loved us, you know. And so it just was, it was just the most beautiful stroke of fate ever and uh, destiny ever. And Paul joined the band, which to me, you know, being the self-taught kind of, I can't read music, you know, uncomfortable, self-conscious musician uh, or non-musician, really, all of a sudden I'm a musician, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, God. So it sounds... It you sounds... Know, I, told, I told him that too. I go, you know, Paul, I, I never really felt like a real musician until you joined the band. And he said, oh, John, Ed, I've always thought of you as a real musician, you know. And so, um, and so he joined the band, and we knocked out the record, pretty much. Came back till they worked a little bit on it, and it just, it just blew out of the water. You know, um, we ended up touring with Sting. We ended up touring with World Party over there, uh, which was great. One of my favorite bands on the that ever existed. And um, we, it just, you know, it's the rest is history, as they say. You know, yes. so. Uh, you know, it, it really, it really um, was a rise. Let me tell you. God, that's amazing, actually. With that, well, when once that got released, <sighs> did you feel like the band had sort of moved into a different sort of scene? So, to, you know, a, a different sort of category. Yeah, well, absolutely. Whether I thought so or not, we did. You know, the record went gold. It went, you know. Uh, gold in a couple of places, you know, and we'd never, you know, never achieved anything like that before, you know, at all. And so, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole different, um, club, we yes. could say that you belong to, you know, in, in that, in that level. And that's another, another thing that, you know, a lot of people can't really deal with. And I didn't deal with it very well either. I must admit is that level of success, you know, um, Everything that you enjoy, you know, or at least that I enjoyed doing became someone else's job. All of a sudden, you've got a video director. All of a sudden, you've got an art director. All of a sudden, you've got this, you've got that. And that's the stuff that kept me out of trouble, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And so um, I, spent, I spent as much time as I could in the studio, and um, that's kind of who, that's who I am. That's what I do. I was, I was in there this morning. I've got one here. I've got one right here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that it did, but it also set... I learned a lot because it was also um, what the machinery that is behind creating a hit record. It's not like it just happens, you know, it's like a lot of things fell into place. The stars perfectly aligned. It was IRS's first record with EMI. Um, we had Paul. I had a whole bunch of songs that I'd written on the road. As a matter of fact, I didn't have it. Jim plays bass on a lot of Bloodletting because, uh, and Gail Ann Dorsey, 
uh, who's Bowie's bass player for years, of course, plays on Tomorrow Wendy. But because I, I didn't, I wasn't secure enough to play bass in the studio, and that's absolutely the right decision because Jim's a monster studio player. But um, and I've written all the songs on guitar, so I basically tracked the um, basics just with Paul. It was just basically Paul and me. You know, I play the song guitar and on drums, and oh my God, nobody nobody plays drums like Paul Thompson. He's just I, when I saw Roxy recently, or whenever last September, uh, at the Forum in LA, and and of course it was packed, and um, and everybody was there, and I heard somebody next to me, you know, some journalist next to me, and he said something like, "Every drummer in LA is here," and he goes, "I think I've seen ten drummers so far tonight," <laughs> and I. I told Paul afterwards, and I said, I said, you know, I told Paul afterwards, he says, well, I'm glad you didn't tell me before, and I wouldn't have been able to play. Because, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. yes, because, so did that make then the follow-up album, and then not having Paul for the for the album, Walking in London? A, a... Paul, Paul was on uh, the follow-up, that was, um, the follow-up album was Mexican Moon. Um, Walking in London was before uh, Bloodletting. And I think, I'm pretty sure, uh, Mexican Moon followed, uh, because Paul is on half of that record on Mexican Moon. Mexican. And, and Harry, Harry plays on that stuff, which, was, which I hate to say it was a mis- uh, something that I wouldn't do again. Um, but, I, you know, Paul had, we were having visa trouble with Paul by that point. Um, and I felt really guilty about having all that success. Um, without Harry, without, you know, Harry having involvement, which was a mistake. Somebody either, it's either in the cards form or it's not, you know what I mean? And we tended to run into the same problems and, you know, and that was a drag because Mexican Moon's a great record. And um, what I didn't know also, and that Miles told me later, because it didn't do that well at all. And we were just like, what's going on? You know, this is a, this record is great it should do is well i just recently found out you know when miles was doing his book and they did a a, a documentary on him is that he'd uh, he'd let the head of of uh, promotion quit because he wouldn't give him a percentage of the company and he regrets it now well i'm glad i get to say this because i always felt you know i didn't know this for how many years didn't i know this yeah that you know that that happened and and here i'm thinking like jesus are we one hit wonders i mean what's the deal what's going on here and as chris tangerini said we should have been able to sit on a plate and have them sell a million records <laughs> <laughs> that's a good impersonation actually um yes. oh, chris is so brilliant good luck studio <laughs> <laughs> What a sweetie! Because there was because one of yeah. the bands that had a huge influence in the very early seventies was because my parents had a couple of records. One being the Carpenters, so obviously you know. Oh, huge! I know, and and huge. and and those lyrics. I realised that if you like the Carpenters, you're going to definitely like Joy Division, and then the Smiths, and and any depressing band because yeah. all their songs are stunning. And obviously, you do this amazing song on that compilation. If I were a carpenter, can you? How did that kind of project come together for you or how did you get asked to be on it well i can't remember frankly who asked me to be on it um but i I used to get asked to be on a lot of things in those days and my manager told me about it and they asked if they want to be on it and i i had to pick a song and i i really wanted to do superstar um because leon wrote that with bonnie bramlett and um i really wanted to do that because that's just the best song to sing and it's a great song 
but um, the dude in Sonic Youth ended up doing it, and so I ended up doing um, Hurting Each Other, which is also great. I mean, everything's great, but I wanted to sing. Some of them have better, are more deeper to sing than other ones, but um, but I but I didn't get it. So anyway, we did it, and Mark Moreland uh, from Wall of Voodoo um, plays guitar, and so um, in a very deconstructionist. Uh, sort of, it's such a strange track, and I'm, I really am proud of it. It's, it. I just listened to it not too long ago, and I wish it sounded better. But I'm also so not used to the sound of analog anything anymore that, it's, that I don't understand. But uh, but um, the interesting thing about the track is that I can. Karen Carpenter was a huge influence on me vocally because she was an alto. Uh, and when I was in school singing in choir and everything, I was a second soprano, which is one above an alto, but I'm an alto for sure, you know, and, uh, and Karen was, and a lot of girl, you know, girly voices are, you know, generally what you hear and what you heard. And Karen was not a girly voice. She was super sultry and super cool. And I've always been attracted to that sort of voice to even, uh, even on a Peggy Lee Eartha Kitt level, you know, I just really like that low down stuff and I have no choice. I was born with it. So I, <laughs> yes. So I, I, so I love, so Carpenters were always happening for sure. It was just the Carpenters. Uh, I think, I think we've only just begun was played at every prom that year. <laughs> every, every wedding every prom, every graduation, you know? So, um, uh, but, but me singing, like actually doing Karen pretty much is all I'm doing. I'm doing Karen, you know? Um, and for Mark to do this completely distorted anti, uh, vinegar where sugar should be, do you know what I mean? With, with the guitar is just, is really the kind of thing that appeals to me that appeals to us both. Yes. You know, actually, is that that as a matter of fact, the pretty and twisted record that I did with Mark, I think that's what you're talking about with the career uh, change thing. And yeah, we Mark Mark and I met when we toured with Walla Voodoo in Australia, and we uh, we wanted to work together for a long time, and um, uh, had the I had the opportunity to do it, and we made a record for Warner Brothers. Pretty and twisted is what it was called. And Mark Mark's the one that thought of that uh, that name because. He's absolutely right, and that's it's just sweet and sour, basically. But you know, that's what's interesting about the about the collaboration, is that I can't help do what I do. I'm a pretty, you know, mainstream kind of an artist as far as my voice and singing and, you know, and, and background and sort of. So I sang a lot of top forty, you know, after I graduated high school, you know, because that and that's great singing. I suggest every, everybody do top forty if you're a singer because you'll have to sing absolutely everything thrown at you, and it's the best thing that you can really do. Um, and I just I think probably I, we used to say that you know we used to take bets on every wedding we worked at because we really doubted that they were going to stay together for very long. But anyway, <laughs> it's an experience. It's an experience you should have. So, but that was the the thing that was appealing is the actual, you know, the contrast, I'll say. And so th about that track, that's what that's what appeals to me about it. Yes. And doing doing that collaboration with Mark Morland from The Wall of Voodoo, doing Pretty and Twisted, was that quite a relief to be able to sort of step away and do something with a completely different group of people? Well, well, yeah, yeah, it it, it was, and um, I 
you know, it became once you, you know, you're getting getting into that, we got to make a hit records thing, you know. And as a matter of fact, when I turned in Bloodletting, Miles Copeland told me he didn't hear a single, and he wanted me to go into the studio and record six more songs. And I, I, I absolutely told him to fuck off and and went back to England and and lot and got lost. Of course, he, his dad was in the CIA. He can find you wherever you go. It doesn't matter. Miles will find you. But it, but it was. <laughs> It was, you know, I didn't want to hear it. I, I didn't want to hear it because that record was was pretty much all all I had. And uh, if he didn't hear a single in Joey, if he didn't hear it in Caroline, if he didn't hear it, you know, um, if he didn't hear it, he didn't hear it because everybody I know heard it. You know, Chris Tangerides, he would ask every day. He would say, "Do we have lyrics for Car- for Caroline or for Joey yet? You, you know, do we have lyrics for Joey yet?" Because he was he swore up and down that was going to be huge. And so I didn't want to hear it from Miles. And so, um, so yeah, I forget what the point of that one. That one, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. So there you go, you know. But once you got to get away from that, you know that that we don't have a single, we don't have a single, we don't have a single, you know. And while the Voodoo is obviously, you know, they're quite a, uh, an experimental um, outfit, you can say. You yes. Know? Even Andy Preboy, you know, joined, who wrote Tomorrow Wendy, and who's a brilliant songwriter one of the greatest american songwriters that ever lived as far as i'm concerned but um they're always more experimental than, than we were we weren't very experimental really you know at all we, we were like not experimental at all no. and i really would like to do more of that i loved i love nico with with the velvet underground i love that but those are really good songs you know what i mean and it's just kind of like a you know, but I love the grittiness of the music, and you know, I loved all that. But I, I really did want to, you know, being kind of flogged into the single mentality. You know, is, is anybody will tell you it's, you know, it's a difficult, difficult. Oh, are you still there? Even if you think naturally that way, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not the greatest songwriter, so I'm like, oh, I've got a great verse, I got a great chorus. Let's just, you know, throw it three times, twice, three times. Six. You know, throw a bridge down there or a percussion break, and we're done. You know, but you listen to some of the old songs, and they really, you know, they get into it. You know, yes. It's, uh, because you, because on that particular album, the uh, Pretty and Twisted, you have Chris Bailey from the Saints, don't you, and also Paul Weston. I do, I do. That ripped me apart to lose him last July. I wasn't expecting that at all. I was not expecting it at all, and that ripped my guts out it still does it's definitely um definitely upset me tremendously um but yeah i do have chris on it well chris and i met in australia you know um down there and uh hit it off immediately and toured quite a bit actually he opened for concrete blonde here in the states but i also uh opened for him solo um a bit down there in australia also and um We've probably played a couple other places together. I think we did. Oh, we did London together, actually. And I think we might have done Paris together also. But we're very, very good friends. And, um, yeah, he came and, and co-wrote a couple of things with me. He co-wrote Ride on that record, um, which is great. And I think he did one more, and I can't remember because I haven't heard it in such a long time. But, yeah, I did. And I collaborated also with Paul Westerberg from The Replacements, who did... Uh, Oh, is it? I forget the title of it. Yes, it is, and uh, I've got. It is called Stranger, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yes. <laughs> so I did that, and he play, he he wrote the music, and I wrote uh, he, I wrote the music, and sent him the uh, for lyrics, and he did the lyrics to that one. So um, we have him on the lyrics for that, and uh, I actually took some old Janis Joplin lyrics that had not been used. And I, don't, I forget how those came to me. I, I really do. And I think maybe her management sent them or something. And um, they wanted me to set them to music. And I thought, well, this is, you know, an honor and a privilege and all that sort of jazz. And so I did. But I did it. I, by this time, what, what year is it? Like 1990 or something? 89? 88? What, what year is it around, around Pretty Twisted? I think that's um, 90. Oh, wait a minute. I think it's 95, actually. Oh really? Oh okay. So yes. speed up, fast forward to '95. So um, they sent they sent that to me, and by then hip hop was you know uh, uh, was what was obviously what it was all about, and what it was going to be all about for quite a long time, at least in LA, you know. And so um, and that's where I lived, you know. So um, and I already seen that going on in the clubs in London. I'd seen you know a beat basically getting gaining ground let's just say you know as a as, as a movement basically and anyway so so i thought janice who was always inspired by black music as was i um she was always into bessie smith and you know and jazz and, and billy holiday and you know um she was always into into blues and blues singers and black music i and I think if she were, I, I came up, I went about about it as if she were alive today. You know, I didn't want to do a, a yelly, screamy thing, yes. you know, and it was a beautiful lyric. It was a very smooth lyric, come away with me, you know, and it was very peaceful. It was so peaceful, you know, that you would never know it was a Janis Joplin lyric, you know. And, um, and so... Uh, I, I did a hip-hop, a slow hip-hop groove, and, and did a beautiful, smooth, dreamy version of it, and their management didn't like it. And, and, and the deal was 50-50, which is how I do everything, because it gives people more equality going into any given project or business relationship at all. And so um, uh, they pulled it the last minute. We're about to master and they pulled the deal. They just said, no, we don't, we're 100% publishing or we're not going to do it. And I just went, well, that sucks. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to pull it off the record. I've always kind of, I've kind of sequenced the record and it works. And it's not her fault that you're a dick and you went back on your word. So I went, so I went ahead and used it anyway. And it's a beautiful track, you know, so I'm very, I'm very pleased with that. But I'm pleased because because I think Janice would have liked it, but you know I'm not I you know it's not like my audience like a lot my my whole audience likes Janice Joplin anyway, dude. So just you know just you know you smoke your joint and go away. Yes, absolutely. Because so, you know, cool. yeah. by the mid '90s you you'd sort of collaborated with Holly Beth Vincent and then members of Talking Talking Heads as well. So. This this is kind of a very prolific period for you, isn't it? Even though, you know, the band, you know, um, isn't quite so sort of um, happening as it was. Did you, did you um, yeah, were you just kind of floating from one sort of project to another quite smoothly at this stage? No, well, no. I mean, it's not every day that the talking heads ask you to join to replace a legend you know what I mean? So um, Jerry had been after me for a while to work with them. And so um, 
Holly was just a friend of mine. We were waitresses years together, years ago together, you know, before even the band and she, before her band or anything like that, we were both waitresses. I think she'd starred, just started Holly and the Italians in, in Hollywood on the other side of the hill. We were working in the Valley. And, um, and so we were both waitresses. So we're just, and I thought she was cool. She was a musician and so was I. And so, you know, um, uh, I went, I'd go and see, oh, she was in a band called Backstage Pass, which was, uh, a bunch of young ladies, young rock and roll appreciating ladies, and um, and they were cool. They were an all girl band, very early all girl band in L.A. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And and so I was a fan. I was a fan of Holly. And um, and then she moved. She moved, and I think she got signed to EMI London. Basically, was the deal. But she was gone. Anyway, we t- we spent a couple of days. Her band opened for me um, quite a while for for a month, I think, for a long time. Opened for Concrete Blonde. And so we went in and did a little record and just whacked it off in like, you know, a couple of days with our, with the, the road engineer who'd never made a record before. And, um, and that was that. And then it was, it was just that fast. It was one of the things that you do in a day, literally, you just sit and write it in one day and I play bass and Holly's a great drummer and uh, uh, she played drums and then put some guitar on it. Or I think I did too. I'm not sure, but yeah, we made a record together, but the heads was really a great. I mean, that was just that was really really good. Um, it would if they if they 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 made a few missteps in my opinion that were pretty serious, and if and there was a whole album recorded that's just sitting there at MCA, you know. So uh, that should have come out before the um, guest record with all the guest singers on it, you know, because their problem at that point was was everybody saying that they were shit without David Byrne and they, what they needed to do was, you know, get another focal point in there. Somebody, you know, it was a permanent situation. And then you have guests. How can you have guests? You know, if I'm the guest, I can't have guests, I'm a guest. So, you know, they, so we toured and it was a a great band. I'll tell you, you know, it was great. It was great to play with them. I played guitar and blast Murray or Mwaka as he is known uh, and has been for a while now, who, who was, in the Arrhythmics and Terrence Tread Darby's band, and he was uh, just the best. I love hanging out with him. He was he was super cool. Former Black Panther, he did not fuck around. He played some amazing guitar, and um, and I, I was it was really great. And I played guitar, and there was a lot of work, a lot of writing. I lived with them back in um, next door to Martha Stewart or whoever it is they live with in Connecticut. I don't they live next door to, and lived with them for a while, and and did a did a, a couple of records and. Whether anybody hears them or not, I have no idea. Blimey. You know, but it was, it's something that you don't turn down, basically. There are things that you do. I mean, there are things that people do, you know, when you when certain people ask you to do something that means a little bit more than, you know, just, you know, you take an opportunity, basically, and you don't get a chance like that every day. And it was really, really a great band. Really good. Yes. Because at that point, in the mid to late 90s, it, there's a lot of kind of hard-hitting jock bands, aren't there? And I don't know if you ever saw the film, you know, Woodstock 99. It's it's kind of, you know, all these kind of horrendous frat boys and kind of lad culture. What? Well, how... well, yeah, that, you know, that's mosh, it's mosh stuff, like I said. You know, you got, I mean, that's, that's what that stuff is. So the Woodstock, was that the one where... Uh, 
where Danny got them to throw mud over each uh, nine inch nails to throw mud all over each other. I can't remember if that was the one. Or I not. think this is the one where they, uh, yeah. they they started to dismantle the place and smash it up. And virtually every band oh. was one of these, you know, like Limp Biscuit, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I know a lot of those guys, so I can't really say too much bad about them, and I don't because Nine Inch Nails are great. I mean, there's you can't. It doesn't get better than that. And I've done I've done work with Danny Loner quite a bit, and I'm about to work with him again. Um, but so I actually, I, I saw Nine Inch Nails and I just went, damn it, man. I, why, you know, you guys go die. You're so good. And they're really good. And I love that shit. I'm all into that, uh, dark industrial. I saw freaking throbbing gristle at the whiskey back in the day. I know Genesis Peorich, you know, I, I, I knew him. I had, I had a Jim Jones sample from a record that I bought in Paris, I think in Paris. And it had Jim Jones on it, and I used I used a sample off of it for a a song called Jonestown. And he's he's passing out the Kool Aid. And if you've ever heard that speech, it's really the most creepiest, hellish, evil thing you've ever heard in your life. And uh, and I used it on the record, but I didn't want it in the house anymore, so I gave it away to somebody. But but Genesis owned the rights to that record, and so I called him up, and he let me use the sample for six hundred bucks, and he was super nice. Um, and he was really great. We, we got along really, really well. But I, I saw Throbby Gristle, you know, early on. So I, I have a, a serious appreciation of that stuff. I have a lot. I have a serious appreciation of anybody who does not what doesn't do what I do, you know, basically, because I find it infinitely more interesting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> then, so then, when, when you did your next two kind of um, albums, Concrete Blonde, you know, finishing with, well, you know, group therapy. What was that kind of experience like with the band and and sort of the creative process? We, uh, I had an experience before nine eleven that you could probably go ahead and and write down as a nervous breakdown, but it, it actually wasn't because a lot of people collectively had this experience where I was having nightmare. I was looking at the sky and I was having nightmares of planes crashing, and I was on a plane to New Orleans and I fell asleep and I had a dream about window washers falling. And I was like, I was sleeping under my bed and I was just getting up and looking up at the sky. And I was, it was really, you know, I have, I have a sensitivity, let's just say that. So I really, it really, um, I was really a mess um, and I needed help. And I went, I had, I wound up at a a shrink, a neurologist, therapist, psychologist, she's a psychologist, neurologist. Um, and, um, the first thing she said to me, my, my medical doctor referred me to her. First thing she said to me was, there are things we don't, we can't explain. And then I trusted her because nobody can explain that. I'm sorry. Nobody can explain things I've seen. Nobody, you know, I mean, we can get into the UFO thing again, but I, I, when she said that, you know, when she said that I trusted her. And so, you know, we started working together, uh, quite a lot, but so he, so I had a lot of, the mental wobble, then, is what I'll say. Jim had gotten married by this time, so he was a happily married dude. Harry, who I hadn't seen in years by this time, had was in a rehab someplace. And um, somehow I had the feeling, I had a real end-of-the-world feeling, I can't lie. And I, I, and I said, well, we have to make this record. You know, we have to make one more record. And so we basically, Harry was living in rehab full-time, and we basically all um, got together at a rehearsal place near near his uh, in Culver City, near his rehab, 
and just went at it like for a solid month and just sat and just whatever came out came out and um and that was group therapy and so it was on a small label and and um and then and then uh the record was done we did the record and then <clears throat> right before touring we had a release thing and the last day of rehearsal harry didn't show up at all so it, it was once again you know it's unfortunate but you know it, it is what it is it is what it is yes and so you know he didn't show up and we managed we managed to go out on a piece of a tour and then you know kim who had been my tour manager kim haas uh who actually tour managed motorhead when she was like 16 she uh she was our tour manager and she um we did sound check, and I can't remember where we were, but she comes in, and, and doors are open, and we're ready to go on. And she comes in, she goes, we have a problem. And I said, what's the problem? She goes, Harry's gone. I said, what do you mean Harry's gone? And, and she goes, this, nothing is on the bus. He's gone. And so uh, I had hired an, uh, uh, a, uh, an LDE, you know, lighting director, who, who was a drummer, for, in anticipation of having this kind of problem. And I just pulled him, pulled him out from behind the lighting desk, and I said, you get to play drums tonight, homie. And so, you know, but you have to live that way with a drug addict. You have to always have your ass covered and always, and it really, it's exhausting as anybody has, who has been through it knows, but I know he's has two, two beautiful sons and I wish him all the best. And, uh, he, he did some great stuff with us. So it's all good. Yes, my God. And it's such a brutal cover as well. Did you, I mean, as album covers go, this is quite, um, quite a statement, isn't it? Isn't that cool? That's an Eames chair. And of course, uh, not an Eames chair. I can't, I can't, it's an Eames chair. Anyway, whoever whoever um, built that chair was Stickler. It's a Stickler chair. And, uh, he designed the the electric chair, so it's charming. Um, but but uh, yeah, and I'll tell you what, it was really interesting. Um, Ed Culver, who is a legendary uh, LA photographer and, and has uh, has a lot of stuff in the gallery. There's a punk rock museum now in. Um, in Hollywood, and he has a lot of stuff in the gallery. And he he did he did a, a lot of early punk photos that everybody's very familiar with that are classics, you know, and photographed Black Flag and you know and all that sort of stuff. And he did that photo. Ed did that photo. He did the photo of our first album, actually, uh, uh, the first Concrete Blonde album, Downtown. Oh no, that wasn't him actually. He didn't have a cover. I was a kind of, anyway. I don't remember, but he did this one, and and so he he had the uh, straight jacket idea. And it was a great idea, but have you ever been in a straitjacket? No, I try and avoid those things. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And and it was after it was, that was that was like not there was nothing. I mean, that's an actual expression that I was starting to get because I had to get out of that damn thing. And I think I think everybody managed to you know to stay in it for maybe five minutes, not even five minutes, and people were just like, "There's something about it that just really." freaks you out it's creepy yes too much isn't it so did you then relocate at this stage and and sort of head to the deserts did it what did i'm trying to think of when that was exactly well la was getting very crowded by then and um i also knew yeah it was getting crowded by then and i had a studio in my house i was recording a lot at home by that point um, that was ADAT times when we were using ADATs then. And so I was doing a lot of recording at home. Um, 
and it was noisy. It was getting really, really noisy in that neighborhood. And so I said, I, I know that I'm not going to be able to live here for much longer. It's driving me crazy and people parking and people were dividing up things. They've since put a moratorium on, on it, but they were, you know, the bigger old mansions and stuff, they subdivide and then there's two, there's not enough room for the cars, whatever. Anyway, so I decided to move and I was going to move to closer to the beach and have a house built there. And I just could not see myself living there in uh, for any length of time because it was way up on a cliff. I wouldn't be able to drive down without dying. And there was nowhere to, you know, it just wasn't, um, it had to be built and I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. Two meetings with the architect. I'm like, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is something I can't do. And I was nervous about fire. And since then there has been a fire. It would have burned down. So I kind of feel that too. It's like, I'm really nervous about fire. So anyway, uh, point is I was, I had to find a place to live while this house was being built. And I had three dogs at the time. And so I was driving around, I was going to sell my house in Hollywood and I was driving around looking for, uh, I was looking for a place to rent for six months. And my dad was a contractor and a builder. And I know damn well that you've got to plan a couple of months for this stuff to go over because it always does. And, it, you know, for, there's a formula for every time it rains, you got to wait 12 days or whatever it is. Anyway, I know, I, I know that this stuff is never on time and it, it's stupid to count on it being done on time. So, um, so I was looking for a place to stay and I could not find a place to rent with three dogs that wouldn't um, be way too expensive um, by the time the house was done. Uh, and so I kept looking farther and farther out of L.A. and I came out here. And when I came out here, I just said, oh, yeah, I'm staying out here. Forget it. I, I forget about the house. Forget about building the house. Forget about it. Sell the land and get something nice out here with a lot of land around it. Because that's what you need, you know what I mean? It's not a matter of soundproofing your, you know, your rooms. It's a matter of land around you, you know, at least for me. I really need that, you know, claustrophobic very easily. Yes. And so, um, yeah, and for, and for what, I'm not getting any younger either. So I'm like, am I going to be able to go out and do a show? You know, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm born in Hollywood. I was, I'm shocked to still have people call me for shows. I, I thought for sure when this you know, I've heard I've heard the behind the scenes talks about women over the, over 20 or over 30 or, you know, I think I was 32 years old and we were at Warner Brothers and the chick in the video department. And we were pretty I was pretty twisted. And she says, um, are you going to have young people in this video? And I'm like, Jesus, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, talk about, you know, I was in my 30s, you know. So I, I knew that, you know, if I wanted to keep keep making music, which I was always going to do. Um, that nobody was going to open up a checkbook for me, you know, and so I, I, um, uh, I liked everything about about it, you know. I like the co the cost of living. I, I I could still do this no matter what, and I'm not getting any younger. So I figured, well, I I you know, I this is the move that I should make. It's the right move to make, and so so I made it. I fell in love with the place. I just I first I lived in one location, and then I lived there two years, and then I moved out here where I live now. Yes. Which is farther out. It used to be it used to be so far so far out. It's still far out. It's on a lot of dirt road and people bitch and moan and but if you would have told me things like Instacart, you know, would come out here twenty years ago, I would have said, nah. So, you know, but they do. And so I don't have to leave the house I don't even have a car right now. I don't I don't care. I I, I hired somebody to get my friend gets my mail and she brings it out once a week and that's fine. Fantastic. God, that is so... Uh, I hay, the hay for the horses, the horse hay gets delivered, you know, and 
know, they make their delivery, and so uh, everybody's taken care of. Fantastic. Sorry, I stepped on you. Did you? So, do you sort of have rescued rescue horses now? Well, yeah, in the sense that uh, they're adopted. Both of them. Well, one of them I bought because the kid that was selling him, um, I made a mistake about the price, but the kid had to get rid of him, and, he, and his mother had only given him some time to get rid of him, and I needed a, ha- a horse real quick um, because I thought I was doing a tour in Brazil next month, which is turning out not to happen, but I needed to get a companion horse for my horse if I was going to leave and in fact, that's, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm planning on doing any shows at all, which I haven't in a while, it was after, you know, COVID, who cared, but I need to have somebody, a companion for her. So I have two horses now. And True, who is my main, my main girl, she's uh, beautiful, white with blue eyes. She's gorgeous, but she, they had a foal out of her uh, earlier than they should because of her color, because she's so beautiful, white with blue eyes. She's very rare color. So they, they made her drop a sprog as you'd say faster than she should and so her back end is damaged and so she doesn't like anybody to ride her so she is well trained but she doesn't want to be ridden because it hurts so uh that's why i have her it's because she i'm not making any demands on her and as it turns out my mexican my azteca um diablo he is the, the Mexican dancing horse that does, does all that Pancho Villa standing on his back legs and all that sort of stuff, all dripping in beautiful silver and, you know, in the parades and everything. And that's what he used to do. And um, he won't, he, it turns out that he doesn't want to do any of that. I'm, I'm really happy to have him because, um, you know, I have the land and his back, his back end was messed up because he lived down in the city where the kid couldn't, he could only take him out of the stall three times a week or whatever. And his back end was starting to atrophy and he couldn't keep any muscle on. And now he's just beautiful and he's muscled up and they're both healthy and really good. And so, um, I'm happy to have, I'm happy to have him. Yeah. You can't just put two, any, any two horses together. You have to, you have to work to get the right thing. He's a, he's a, a male or, a, you know, a gelding actually, cause he's fixed 10 years younger than she is. And so he's a good companion for her. Two mares, two mares tend to fight, you know, there are exceptions, of course, but there's definitely, you know, you can't just, there's family balance. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, I, you know, so you, you, and two is the most I can manage. Well, no, know, that, that's, that's quite, a, that's still quite a lot of responsibility. I take animals very responsible, but you did, you've done quite a few solo albums. You did this, um, kind of a, a sketchbook one two and three and then the naked album and then um as we mentioned at the, be- at the beginning and a new album as well so you've been very productive during your time in the desert so have you got a studio that you've um constructed and still making music well yeah that's i mean that's why i came out here because this is ultimately what i'm gonna do with my life and you know i need I need the space and, and, to, and to be able to do it. And that's harder and harder, you know, to find and, and afford. And I'm very, very lucky to have, to have come out here when I did, you know? And so, yeah, I spent the years, I mean, the place wasn't much at all when I got it. It was, you know, it looked like a crack den, you know, but it's taken years, you know, to get the floors and to get the windows in. I brought in a whole other building, which is the barn and half of it is where hay is stored. And then the other half is where my drums are. 
you know, so it sounds great. Uh, and, uh, and I sing, I do the singing and the vocals out there. And then most of the stuff I do direct and I'll do it in here where I am right now, which isn't the best vocal place. So I'm sorry I didn't give you the sound out there, but it'll, it'll get warm out there in a little while at this time of day, which is why I'm not out there in the soundproofing of the studio and everything. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I love my place. I'd put my stuff up against anybody's. I mean, a lot of the exquisite corpses stuff, if you have the CD, the spoken word stuff isn't on the uh, the album, the vinyl. It isn't on the vinyl because for time it didn't fit. But uh, but spoken word is really hard to record. It's definitely hard to. The hardest vocals on that album are the spoken word vocals because every little pop and every little spit and every little missing tooth gets in the way and everything. You know, it's really hard to do those. And then drums. You know, Gabriel's. Uh, drums on the um, on the spoken word stuff he came up with beautiful that was a great session because i had all the barn doors open the whole building was open and it was nighttime and the stars were out and i was just telling him you know you know he he's he really gets it he gets direction in a way that i love it i appreciate people taking direction just like pretend pretend you're this you're that it's like play this as if you're drumming on the steering wheel at a stoplight and he just nails it you know what i mean i just like communicating that way and, um, and, you know, that's not the way to communicate in, in a studio session, in a commercial, you know, studio session, like in L.A., you know, for movies. You know, I mean, they're real musicians. They can read and do it on the spot. I can't. I, you know, I don't know how to communicate stuff like that. That's another thing musicians need to learn is language, you know, how to. When I worked in the studio, it was, it was sad because, you know, they're trying to get out what they hear, but they can't communicate it to an engineer. You know, he doesn't know what you mean if you say make it sound like, you know, uh, you know, a, a, I don't know, make it make it sound like a, a fire. I mean, <laughs> you know, how do you translate that to somebody? So, you know, that's that's another thing, too. And I appreciate it when I can work with people on that level. Danny's another one, Danny Loner from Nine Inch Nails, and he's another one that uh, I can work with on that level. You know, I'm listening to something, and I'll say, you know, make it small, and he'll totally know what I mean. And not, not everybody will know what you mean. That's interesting. You know, so I, I really, I really like that. I really like that. Tangerides was like that too. You know. Yes, it's interesting because I think was it Captain Beefheart? He he sort of ended up living in the desert. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, I think you know it's a it's a, a person. I guess it's a it's a, a certain kind of person. I I don't know what you know. People are just starting to see. I hope they're they're seeing it. People, are, the young people are the people. Other people see you know, developing, and that's a big problem here, huge problem right right now. Um, we've shut down two, two resort developments in the last six months, actually. The county has backed them up, and they're both appealing, but it's really hard to, it's, the rape is something that happens, you know, um, and I see that, I see, you know, the development just obviously engulfing everything, you know, I mean, it's just happening everywhere, but um, to happen here is a little different, and so um, we're trying to, to, to sustain, you know, try to keep, keep everybody from seeing this as a commercial gold mine is, 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 is the issue now, you know, yes. um, because, it, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but you've got, you know, even, even, you know, you know, you can sit, you can sit in another state and, you know, dial it in and expect to plop down some money for an Airbnb and collect bank every week. And it's all fun and games until you have 60 mile an hour winds and all that expensive stuff that you just 
set up your back patio with. I find I find all your pillows in my on my property because they just blew in from you know from five miles away. You know what I mean? It's, like, <laughs> it's all fun and games until you're watching it on your ring camera. Until you're watching somebody steal your ring camera on your ring camera. <laughs> <laughs> do does it ever get? I've often wondered this. Does it ever get a little bit spooky living in the desert? By the way, you know, living. With... Oh, we love spooky. We, we love spooky. <laughs> it's terrifying. It it gets to, it's legendarily terrifying. Uh, it doesn't for me. I'm, I know that I'm safe here. I've been here a very long time. I'm, I feel much safer here than than uh, in the city. And I've got horses, uh, you know, on the porch most of the time. So you know, I'm not worried about anybody uh, yes. coming in or anything. People are scared of horses. So, but yes, people are very frightened. It's very frightening. You don't want to. Even I've been here. I've been here for a very long time, and if and I don't I don't go out at night at all. Um, but when I did, um, if I you know made a wrong turn or if I got lost or God forbid you should pop a tire or something out here, you you it's I don't like it. I don't like it. It's very scary. I I went down. I saw a, a band I really like actually in two uh, two. They've been they've been around since like 2000, 2005, I think they peaked. They've been around a while, and I'm horrified to have discovered them just so late. But they're called Hippie Sabotage, and they're uh, they're amazing. Um, and I actually went to see them. That's how much I like them. And it's weird because it was right before COVID struck, and I never ever go to shows. I never go to go to shows, and I and it was three hours away this show. So I just said, you know, if I don't see these guys now, I just have a feeling that I, I really should go, you know, I should see these guys. And they had a tour that just looked like, I, I know I wouldn't live through this tour that they had booked of Europe. And so I, you know, I was like two brothers, they're just fantastic. And so I drove all the way to see them and I came back and it was really late. As a matter of fact, I had, had to leave a little early because uh, it was so late. And so I got home, I was driving up the pass to on highway 62 uh, at about two thirty-three in the morning. And I see this little girl in white in the middle of the highway. There's divider, you know, there's like a median in the middle of the highway where there's trees and they see you come and go from the upper desert, from the higher desert to the lower desert. And I see this little girl in a white dress. And I, I go, what the hell is that little girl doing there? And so I, I went, I, as soon as I could turn around, I, I drove and then I turned around and I turned around again and I made a circle, like I circled around you know, the whole, that whole area of highway, like, you know, three or four times until I was getting low on gas and I had to get up the hill and, um, and I didn't see her. And I thought maybe her parents' car broke down close by somewhere or something. And so I, I started researching, I'm, I'm a big ghost hunter person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, there's a site called California, Haunted California. And I saw a story on Haunted California about this little girl who haunts uh, that area, who, who haunts that area of the uh, of the highway, that strip of highway, and there's a lot of uh, washes um, that they're called channels. They're called the, that run wild water down under that part of the highway. And so the next time I had uh, a cause to go down the highway in the daytime, I looked very hard to see if I couldn't recognize maybe which one she was at. And that channel is called the Devil's Wash actually, that I saw her at. And I went, that's the one. I knew it when I passed it. I said, that's the one I knew. And I, I, could, I could recognize it. But it was because there wasn't a sign on the other side. But yeah, so there's a lot of legends, a lot of, um, a lot of the ghosts out here 
are actually because it hasn't there are so it's so vast and barren and empty it's the only thing there are a lot of animal ghosts i yes. see a lot of animals all the time uh and and native american um and and cowboys people see cowboys all the time <clears throat> you know native americans cowboys um uh pioneer women uh i'm only about an hour from big bear lake you know and it's really haunted up there it's beautifully brilliantly haunted up there so this whole this whole desert has a, a real uh, history up at Big Bear. Um, that's where a lot of gangsters used to go. As a matter of fact, down in the lower desert, there's two bunch palms, which was Al Capone's place. And then there's a place, uh, he had a place up here um, because he was smuggling booze to San Pedro in L.A. during Prohibition. So he had a lot of high lookout properties, you know, and he's a gangster. He needs high lookout. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's so, so, yeah. uh, so you know he was up there he was, he was down here he was he was all over the place you know so yeah there's a lot of ghosts there's a lot of a lot of history Capone is said to actually haunt too much palms I actually spent the night night there um I didn't see him but people have blimey crikey so when you started you know recording this or writing this new album was that sort of at the beginning of lockdown or had you already started it before the lockdown period exquisite corpses. Well, it was, it, it seemed to evolve as all things do. It, I had a couple of tracks that were never on an album that I thought deserved to be, which were lovely, you know, so there's a couple corpses for you, uh, metaphorically or speaking or whatever. Um, I lost my dad in, I think it was 2010. I don't remember years of things very well or, or blocked it out. And then over the course of the decade, which they say is your Saturn period from 52 to 64, Saturn is the heaviest, most serious planet uh, around us and limiting, restricted um, taskmaster, nose to the grindstone, just takes everything very, very seriously. It's very harsh energy. And everything happens. You know, I lost my brothers a year apart. They were both killed. You know, nobody... Nobody died naturally. No natural causes for me. Um, uh, so, uh, and then a couple of serious things, you know, happened. Um, and then COVID, of course, um, uh, much later in, in that period of time. Um, but I had planned, I, I, st I started recording the record. Uh, I really wanted to do it here. I was really depressed. You know, I was really depressed, and um, I liked the play on Exquisite Corpses. I, I, first of all, if you're familiar with the, the game uh, that the Surrealists used to play when they sat around drinking and pontificating, um, it was and it's still fun um, to take a napkin and start, uh, make a couple lines on a napkin, fold it, and then pass it to your neighbor, and the only part of the drawing he can see is a little tail, just a little, maybe a quarter inch of the oh, line you made. Oh, yes. And then he, add, he adds his own whatever he adds to it and then folds it and then hands it to the next person at the table. They draw whatever comes to their mind and then leaves a little line from the next person to start a drawing of their own. And then at the end of it, you open it all up and it's this wonderful, weird, surrealist uh, conglomeration you know, and it's a wonderful thing to do at a bar or a dinner or whatever, getting people together. It's just really, really cool. And the Surrealists used to do it all, all the time. There's a lot of pictures of really wild ones. So I like the idea of that sort of not knowing how one person connects to another, connects to another, or events, especially in life, you know. And I got all serious about that. 
And um, by then, Ben Woods, who had played, who I'd met uh, online, because I studied flamenco for for 20-something years in Spain and in in the States, and online I found this band, Flametal, that was a fusion of flamenco and metal, and I almost lost my mind. I was just like, oh, my God, I, I thought I found my my kindred spirit, you know, because they fuse flamenco with a lot of stuff, it's, it's, it, it, and, and they generally fuse it with jazz or Latin, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't particularly enjoy those fusions. Um, I'm a purist. I, I like the pure gypsy raw stuff, you know. Uh, but Ben Woods, who uh, played on the song Riding the Moon, which is by far the favorite track on the Exquisite Corpses record, um, had a band called Flamettal. And he fuses, <laughs> they were out of San Francisco. He's originally from Seattle, but he fuses flamenco with metal. And when I saw him, I lost my absolute mind. Uh, it was it was just, it's absolutely amazing. And so I found him and, and hit him up. And I'm like, dude, this is like, I, 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 I need to know you. And I need to see this band. And he was in in, uh, in San Francisco. And, and so I said, uh, I'll, look, I'll book you a gig in L.A. I'll, 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 I'll call up a, you know, a friend of mine that has a, a club in Hollywood. And I'll pay for your hotel room. But you guys, I need to see you guys live. And so they came down and just really just seriously blew the roof off of everything. Because Ben is... Ben is an extraordinary. I mean, he's got guitars. He's got guitars under his name. He's got Ben Woods versions and models of guitars made in Spain and, you know, by Cordoba and stuff like that. And he's just, he's a monster. And we've done a couple of shows together. Um, his longtime partner, Arlene, is a brilliant flamenco dancer and teaches uh, Arlene Hurtado. She actually teaches online. So they opened for us for quite a bit. And uh, Ben. Um, was set to be my guitar, you know, we were set to do Brazil and I was going to go to Australia when Exquisite Corpses came out. Uh, he was going to be the guitar player, you know, and, mm. um, and because nobody else can play that. And so, uh, and, and I wanted to, I love touring with him. I love playing with him. He's just fun to be with. And he's just, he's a ge- musical genius and he just never ends with the, listen to this new beat or compass, you know, it's flamenco and just, it's, I just like, I like learning things from people, you know, so, um, but he got cancer, and uh, and it really it was so wrong, it was so wrong, and and uh, ended up going back to uh, Seattle, um, and he just he uh, uh, and I didn't know I was I was gutted after that. That then forget it. I I didn't hear the second interview I've done about this record. Um, I've talked. I, I've only done one previous because mm. I haven't I haven't done anything about it because I just. I haven't been able to talk about it. I haven't been able to talk about it at all. I, you know, between my brothers and my, uh, and, uh, and then, and, and here's the deal. I went, you know, the night I went to see Roxy, Ben, I was sending Arlene, uh, MP3s of me singing because he, you know, by the time he'd gotten in hospice and couldn't, um, talk, he was non-responsive and she was playing him MP3s and his breathing pattern would change. She could tell that he was, you know, responding to the music. So I was making MP3s and I was sending them, you know, talking to him and singing to him. And, uh, and, and then I went to see, uh, in that week, you know, it was when Roxy was in town and I went to see uh, Roxy and, um, and I turned my phone off for some reason in, in the show. Um, I usually just turn it all the way down, but I, I just turned it off entirely. And when I came out and turned it on, Ben was gone. 
Oh my God! I went out to the parking lot. Yeah, I went out to the parking lot. So I, I think every emotion that I, possible to feel, and then some that I never had, I felt that night. And I got in the car and I drove back out to the desert, and I just it just said, "This is just not not right." And I'm just now starting to crawl out <clears throat> of a very serious uh, um, survivor's guilt. Um, uh, crushing survivor's guilt about that because he he never stopped. He was so creative and uh, I, I learned so much and he made me a, a better musician and to play guitar with somebody like Ben Woods, which we did, you know, a lot um, was just really uh, something else. And then, you know, and he's younger than me, he's so much young, so much younger and then I thought, well, fuck, you know, why Ben, you know, and that made me that made me not, I just didn't want to talk about the record at all and then you know, uh, it, uh, that was, and that was after losing Chris Bailey in July, yes. you know, and I was on with Chris's partner for, for days after that, uh, you know, trying to work through that. And that's been very difficult. Although he did come to me in a dream and berated me, um, not too long ago. It was actually <laughs> on the 4th of July, on the 4th of July, which is something he would do actually. Um, came to me in a dream and really just said something like, you know, I, you know, I, I dreamt that there was a gig and I always have anxiety dreams about gigs and I, I wanted to go, I really wanted to go work out at the gym before this gig. And, but I knew I needed to practice. And I said, well, I'll practice tomorrow because I think we have two days for the show. And Chris goes, no, darling, today, <laughs> like, you know, as if like today is important, like, like don't fucking waste time, you know? And, um, and, uh, so it's, it's just been, it's just been really rough and, and, uh, and I, I, you know, so I, and I don't want to be that. I'm not, I am not, in fact, this miserable person who, who, you know, who wallows in, you know, widow's weeds all day long because my friends wouldn't want me to be that way. But it was very, Ben is a tough one to swallow because I don't understand. He was just so, um, he was, you know, some people are more alive than others, in my opinion. Yes. You know, everybody is equal, but some people are just more alive than others. And Ben was so uh, driven. He was just a beast. He never stopped. And I can be very lazy, you know. And um, uh, I'm trying to work out of my manicness. I'm trying to get uh, – I'm working on my balance and not be so manic. Whereas once that was – you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, that was a cool thing to be. But it's not a cool thing to be now. No. You know, it's not a cool thing to be manic and driven. And besides, I physically couldn't if I wanted to. You know, to try to get me to go on stage at 10 o'clock at night. Try to get me to go on stage. You know, it's physically really hard. You know, things that look good on paper. Oh, yeah, let's do this. You know, and uh, are, I know physically are very hard to do. And then COVID just complicates every fucking thing. I think Metallica just had to postpone because James tested positive, you know. So uh, so COVID changes the whole touring. has The whole thing about touring changed for me when iPhones came out. And yes. then, you know, it's playing live is supposed to be this shared experience, which is why you buy a ticket to it. And you're all sharing this experience and you're all feeling you need, you know, you need this collective energy to make the whole thing work. And when people have their phones up in your face, that they're not present and they're not present. They're thinking of a future, you know, I can watch this in the future. I can show this to people in the future. I can think of, you're doing this for a future moment. You're not, you're not doing, you know, you're not doing now basically. 
And um, not to mention, you know, on another level, it's not good for an artist. It's not, it doesn't sound the best. It doesn't look the best. You know, you're, you know, um, in, in, in certain circumstances, you're taking money away from uh, food off somebody's table. And so it's a very complicated thing. And the last Coachella just actually really like brought that all to a head and it was magnificent it was just so perfect because uh, if you if you know anything about that case it was frank ocean um was supposed to headline and somebody edited a video together somebody back in new york edited a video together because he didn't play or he flaked out of the show or whatever they put air uh, from different shows they put a video together and then from fans shots of coachella they put they made it look like it was him at Coachella and it wasn't and then of course it hit the fan and nobody knows who to sue first and you know (laughs) meanwhile the only thing is in Coachella it says on the back of the ticket it says you're not allowed to reproduce any part of this concert or anything like that but the guy that made the video didn't go to the concert so he didn't he didn't acknowledge that in any way so it's, it's it's a real interesting precedent I think that should be Set. But it's but once again, it's just a change in um, mediums, and you have to learn to work with that, you know. But that it ceased to be fun for me, and a lot of artists my age, a lot of artists my age, because it because you weren't present. You're actually you're just sitting there on your phone, and I don't feel like you're here, and I'm not getting your your attention. You know, the screen is getting your attention. And now I have to think about, now I have to think about how it looks on your screen. I can't just close my eyes and drift away into the zone that I enjoy being in. I have to now actually have all these considerations about how this looks and, you know, and, and uh, what I say and just what, it's just, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that I have not enjoyed in terms of, uh, as, as someone who loves technology as much as I do, I really just wish you know now now it's too late there's old generation that doesn't know how to see a show without without a phone in their hand and you know and it's also challenging and it's fun too i see i see a lot of people actually do creative things with it but they're all very young you know what i mean so it's kind of like you know i don't know yes it's just it just changed changed people's perceptions and changed people's uh the aura of the whole experience the whole concert experience and now with covid you know i i you know i mean that's it's it's just i can't really you know i'm not vaccinated i can't really take a chance on hanging about or if i if i do do shows which is fine you know which i want to do but if i do shows i can't i can't talk to anybody i can't touch anybody shake their hand i can't you know i can't really do that you know i would if i were 20 years younger you know but i'm not so i'm not gonna i'm uh, sorry everybody i I think I think Willie Nelson's wife makes everybody stay like thirty feet away from it at all times, even on stage. Like you know, it's like you know he can't can't be getting COVID. Willie can't be getting COVID. No, you know? this is true. Yeah. So then, so then, yeah. <laughs> just, I know. So I know I know quite a few artists who've had to have a similar sort of thing. Of mainly because they've got multiple health issues and they know that um, they can't take the chance, even if they are vaccinated, just because they've. They've had, you know, cancer, chemo, and they they still wanting to record, but trying to perform live is a bit of a difficult number, really. Um, so, did, so what have you got sort of lined up and planned for your kind of next phase of of sort of creativity? Well, I'm pondering that at this time. In the meantime, during COVID, I started something cool, um, which uh, well, actually, it was my agent's uh, idea, my booking agent, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. 
see. I still love you. Um, he says, you need to start a podcast. And I said, oh, okay, well, whatever. And, uh, and I did, I ignored him as I do a lot for a while. And then, uh, cause I don't want to, I don't really, you know, I don't want to talk about music. I don't want to talk about me. You know, I, I just don't, it's not really my first, the first thing I think of doing when I get out of bed, but I have been reading cards. I've been reading tarot and I've, I am, uh, you know, medium. I do hear uh, dead people, which is how I get my music. I've always heard it and then wrote it down. I, I, I hear it first and then I have to figure it out. You know, I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard many chords I've had to learn, you know, to play my own stuff that I've written. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it is what I, I don't need to, I don't need to uh, worry about the legitimacy of that. And I do plenty of readings. And uh, so I, I read cards for people. I do that as well. I just did a couple actually this week. And so, um, I started I started doing a, a tarot podcast called Coffee and a Card, and uh, I took a little sabbatical for it, from it uh, this year. But I but I got up to quite a few downloads and quite a, it was quite popular. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick that back up. I think in the fall, and it's just a it's just a card in the morning. It's fun. It's a, it's like studying too because the card the tarot cards you know the origins are really amazing and mysterious and all that, but. The history is fascinating, you know, like like on, on every single card of the, the writer weight, the original cards, there's all this medieval history and all this weird stuff. And I learn something every time I read, every time, every detail on the card, every bird, water means something, mountains mean something. It's, there are just so many rabbit holes and I'm such a rabbit hole person that it just, it, it's, I just I just love it. And astrology is very, very much involved. And the astrology this year is amazing. The astrology this month is amazing. I mean, we have eclipse again at the end of the month. And this all, uh, it figures hev heavily in tarot and heavily into cards. And I just think that's all stuff that we really, frankly, just need to know. So I know I'm going to do that. And that gets me started uh, in the morning. And I'm done with that at 10 o'clock. It's posted by 10 o'clock in the morning and so then i get on with also um, i'm going to start recording again because it's fall mm. and it's really hard it's hard to work uh to record in the summer it just gets too hot and um i used to be able to stay up at night and do vocals and stuff when it cooled off but it doesn't cool off anymore at night the weather has changed so much in the last 20 years out here or anywhere obviously but but here and it doesn't cool off enough um, uh, for me to do vocals at night. And I, uh, you know, I obviously have to turn AC off and everything like that. And so, um, and I can't, I, I might start uh, doing them at four in the morning because I, I tend to get up pretty early before the horses, uh, the sun comes up and the horse, and then I'm busted. I got to get out with the horses. They'll know I'm awake. Um, but um, uh, I'm, start, I'm doing um, a Day of the Dead song in Spanish is the next thing that I'm doing um, in September uh, after my birthday, which is uh, next week, this week sometime, next week sometime. I'm going to do, uh, I've never, I've, I've recorded versions of things in Spanish, but I've never actually released something in Spanish. And A Day of the Dead song I wanted to write, you know, I'm a fan of the holiday. I always have been. I love Mexico, always have. Everybody knows that. Um, and so uh, I'm going to do that. I've got uh, that going on, and I've got a session going on for that. I'm actually working with a American girl, woman, 
who lives in London, and she's a deep house DJ. Um, she is the widow, and uh, widow music is her thing. And she, uh, we're working on, I'm working on a couple of her tracks. She sent me some tracks. She sent me some tracks of hers that she'd used a sample um, of mine, an old sample. And that's, that, that can get complicated because there's EMI involved and, and all clearances and things like that. But I liked her stuff so much um, that I just said, you know, and once again, here's something different. You know, I, I, I like to be, I like to do things that are, you know, once again, out of the box for me or out of the box for Concrete Blonde, you know. And so I, I, I said, you know, I just, I really, I really like these tracks. And I said, why don't I just write something and do something original for it for you? And she was really excited. So we're going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and finish those. Um, and then there's uh, the, the Greek songwriter. Who, there's an interesting story behind this one. Ianis Papanikidas or Papakinidas, I always get them uh, mixed to get them get them wrong 50% of the time. Uh, who wrote Joey Deer on the new record, which is the second most popular track on Exquisite Corpses. Um, he, uh, he he wrote Joey Deer. He sent me another track that I'm that is just so it just knocks my socks off. And I actually just had him send me the tracks this week, which I sent to my guy, Brian, to go ahead and set up a session and I'll go ahead and record the vocals here and then send them uh, to Brian to mix in with it. And it's just, it's just, just, I don't even, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I think, I think, I think it's, I'm just, I like SoundCloud and I like this whole ability to just do one-offs as well. So until I get something completely solid and whether I, whether I want to know, I don't know how to follow that album to tell you the truth right now. I couldn't if I tried, but um, uh, I'm thinking about another book. I don't know whether I should just get my ass in gear and do that. I've got that, you know, all over the place. I don't know what format I want to do that in. I don't know where I want to come from. I was thinking about doing Exquisite Corpses, the book, and write about write about the people, you know, that I've lost, just yes. how I met them, who they are, whatever. Like, like I, I was inspired by a friend's obituary she'd written for her husband in the paper, and I just thought, God, you know, she hated writing it, of course. And, you know, I thought, God, why don't I write obituaries for everybody I know and then just do a book about that? And then I thought, well, do I want to put my head back in that space or can I get past that now and write with some humor about these people? And I, I and I think that's where I need to come from is the is, is what made what how they made me laugh because they all did everybody I know I I only I can only deal with people with a sense of humor so you know my brother was hilarious and you know so I've got I've, you know I've got to find a way to come from that so I want to do that at some point and um, the whole year got screwed up because the Brazilian tour. Uh, was postponed yes. and so uh, I'll see what I can do about that next year I'm not quite sure but now I'm gonna probably have uh, we rehearsed the first two weeks of this year I have a, I have a, a guy he, he he's too shy for his own good but his name is Sean Freehill and he was Concrete Blonde's old engineer and he recorded Mexican Moon and he recorded he worked on Bloodletting some too but neither one of us can remember what <laughs> so uh, so uh, Sean uh, is a brilliant guitar player, and I hadn't seen him in 10 years or something. And when this Brazilian thing came up, but I was I was kept in touch with him. He does he does uh, he lives in Wisconsin now, and he has for the past 10 years with his parents who are getting older. And he does market. He does stock market shit all day, which is very stressful and crazy. But um, he came out uh, for a couple of weeks in this winter, which was 
brutal, but he, not for him. He's in Wisconsin, but for us, it was brutal. We're not used to snow like that. So um, we were great. We were so great. We were better in two weeks than I think uh, fans sounded in the last 10 years, really. I mean, yes. it was very, very good. I mean, new stuff sounded amazing. Uh, Leonard Cohen's Roses sounded amazing. And um, it just, the new stuff, the, the, the stuff off uh, Exquisite Corpses sounded great, which made me happier than anything else. So I'm, I know I've got that in my pocket there until until something comes up that that I feel like like uh, like we can do. So and Gabriel Ramirez, who's been my drummer for quite a while, who is in uh, who, who is a rock star in Mexico with his band Maria Fatal, and he's doing stuff with them. So um, I'm not quite sure. Um, here's a funny story about Ianis Papanikidis, though, in Greece. Um, I'd worked with a band called Matisse that Chris uh, Chris uh, Tangeris had sent me down there to work for. Uh, they were on Sony down in, in Greece, and they needed lyric uh, help with their their lyrics in English or whatever it was, and I ended up singing with them on, on the track. But their guitar player's name, was, they called Johnny, and uh, and which is the American Americanization of Ionis, which is a very common name in Greece. So I really liked Johnny. Johnny was cool. We hit it off really good, and we all hit it off, and we drank like fish and all that sort of shit. And so uh, when he got in touch with me, Ionis, about sending me tracks. I said, sure, absolutely, do it. Send them to me, send them to me. So I make the record, we work. He sends me like three or four tracks. I love a couple of them. There's a couple of them I'm working with, actually, that, you know, that are great. This, one, this track, this new one, is just so beautiful. It sounds really Celtic and gorgeous. And so I'm like, this is great. So we're mixing the record, and I just said, I said, look, I want to send it to that, the journalist that we did the interview with in Athens. Um, he's very like the most famous legendary guy to come out of Greece or whatever, um, and he he wouldn't answer me, and I was I was I was wondering why we wouldn't answer me, and he goes I don't know what you what you mean, and I just said what do you mean you know the DJ that we went to we went to the radio station when I was down there, and he said I didn't go to a radio station with you it's not the same guy <laughs> I completely co-wrote a song with a guy named Giannis who I had no idea who he was. <laughs> Excellent. Is, is that the wildest random Chris Tangerini moving things around from wherever he is yes. kind of thing to do? Because Matisse kind of imploded and they just couldn't kind of couldn't quite get their shit together, you know, at the at the end of the day. And uh, and instead, Chris sends me this these gorgeous tracks from this Greek guy who and, and I have no idea who I'm working with the whole time. <laughs> that's that's, that's got to be one of the strangest stories anybody's got about making a record. I swear to God. <laughs> yes, that is that's quite out there, isn't it? I mean, if you, I mean, if you could have whispered, you know, some advice to your like sixteen, all you know, words of wisdom to your sixteen-year-old self, is there anything in particular or something that comes to mind? Oh, yes, I would have just mentioned that, even if that sixteen-year-old would have ignored it. Uh, this is funny. It's a funny question. Um, ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to anyone. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yes. The, until, until you get to be this age, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to see that it was all part of the plan, and it all made sense. Yes. 
It all makes and, and I wouldn't I, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I do I do I do wish I were had a different demeanor. But you know, I just thought of something the other day that was really funny and I quit drinking last year when, when Chris passed away, that was it. I was done. I was just like I can't I can't do this every time somebody dies. I can't go off on, on benders like this. And I don't like the taste of wine anymore. You know, it reminds me of Chris. It's all my, you know, my, my, all my, all the people I like to drink with are all dead, you know, and I really, I don't need to do this anymore. And if I'm still here, there's a, uh, there's, I have to do this for them. I have to make music for them. I have to play for them. I have to do this for them. And I, I really don't want to drink anymore. I've been doing it long enough. It's totally cool. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even like the taste. I don't like the smell. It's so weird. It's like somebody just turned a switch off in my brain. You know, it's, it's really, really strange. Um, but, um, I had to be the way I had to be to do what I had to do. Um, I, 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 I heard a quote. I think there is a quote. It's famous. It's not, it's not like it's, you know, I just heard it anything, but it says, if you meet more than five people, a day, and or if you meet five people a day, or you meet five assholes a day, chances are the asshole is you. And uh, and I I thought of the other day. I said, you know, whoever said that was not in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, especially as a woman, and mind you, you know, I'm I'm, I'm up there now. So that was, you know, when a lot of things happened. You know, it's, it's not a pretty, it's not a pretty business to be in at all. And so, um, but uh, it's never been about anything but the music to me. And that was given to me when I was way too young. And that was given to me, it's still given to me. Um, that comes from a much higher place than, than anything else. And so it really doesn't matter. That'll get you through a whole lot. You know, music will get you through a whole lot of, of um, adversity and turmoil and, you know, war, you know? So, uh, that, so I, 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 am glad that I, I was the way I was for, for reasons. And I don't think number one, I wouldn't have listened to anybody else. And I had a thing ever since I was in the third grade, there's a very famous, uh, twilight zone of a kid who, uh, no, it's actually, I think it was the actual, uh, um, what's the one with David Duchovny? Uh, um, X-Files yes. and the kid you know they ask they talk to a kid and the kid just says well all grown up he could hear everything everybody thought and uh, he said like why don't why, uh, grown ups never tell each other what they're really thinking How you know grown ups are all thinking about each other and they're all worried about what the other person's thinking but they never tell anybody what they're really thinking and it's like and that's kind of how how it was born really I was like, I, I just didn't understand the way humans worked. I, I didn't understand them at all. You know, I, I understand a little. I feel sorry for them. You know, I, <laughs> you know, and I and I have to feel sorry for myself and, and and forgive myself for many things as well because I'm human as well, obviously. But I I didn't understand, you know, the the hypocrisy. You know, I didn't understand how they because people think kids. I don't know, people think kids just aren't there and those. They'll, they'll, they'll talk behind people's backs like kids aren't there and I'll just sit there and go like God this this guy's nice to my dad and then 
you know, now he's talking to my mom. His mom's, my mom's talking shit about my dad with this guy. You know what I mean? It's kind of like I, 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 oh, I never understood. Um, I never understood humans. And so I, I didn't feel like I could trust them. I knew I couldn't trust them from a very young age because I knew they never told the truth. You know, they were never honest. And so I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have changed a thing about, it. I was very protected. I was very guided and I'm very fortunate for the people that have been put in my life. I had a godmother when I was um, very young, uh, before I started school, you know, and she lived next to us in a little courtyard kind of a thing that Bella Lugosi lived in, actually. If you've seen the Bella Lugosi yes. movie, um, that little courtyard is, is where we lived uh, back in the in the 50s, you know. And so, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I've been aware for a long time. My godmother was brilliant. She's the one who told me to go to Europe. You must visit Europe, dear. And I never forgot that. I, I was probably about five years old, and I never forgot that. And by God, I did, you know. And that, you know, so I, I've really, my life is, uh, a very, I'm very grateful, you know. And I, I, I hope to live for a very long time and and um, stand on the backs of, of the people that have inspired me so much, you know. Sting was, Sting's a motherfucker, you know. I mean, he, he's, he is an incredible musician, and um, I admire him. I admire his career, you know, and his his constant changing and or not not even changing not on, a, on a calculated level, just on a pushing yourself level, you know. I I really think you know what you know there there's a couple ways you can go. You can either do your greatest hits because you need the money, and then go back and you all hate each other and just do whatever, and or you can you know you don't need to do that, and you can do that because the fans are always important, you know, and, and, uh, but you got to push yourself as an artist too. Yes. You know, absolutely. If you're not growing, you're dying, as they say, you know, you just, yeah, you got to do it. Absolutely. I mean, when you listen to David Bowie's last album, Black Star, it's the uh, um, most amazing album ever, really. And, um, yes. People think that's his best record. A lot of people think that's his best record, you know, I mean, the video is just phenomenal. Yes. You know, it is. Jeez, man. <laughs> you know that's 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 it that's he's pretty much the epitome of it you know leon played up until he had two brain surgeries i think and and uh he was on stage i mean i think he did that uh didn't they give him a lifetime grammy award or something and he played i think with ray charles and willie on something but anyway he was he got out of the hospital just like three days before that you know so he was playing and playing he's he's never he his records, he doesn't have patience in the studio is the thing. That's why Elton John had to produce his last record because uh, Elton John wanted to make a record, but he said, you got to get a producer because Leon doesn't, he just has, doesn't have any attention span in the studio. I think most, most of all, he doesn't like to have to explain himself to me. I see him trying to explain something. And Brian, who mixes all my stuff, he lives up in Big Bear um, and mastered uh, Exquisite Corpses and stuff. He was Leon's guitar player for a long time, and he was Leon's engineer. And um, and he'd get really frustrated because Leon just would would you know would just get bored and walk out after you know he'd knock something out in the first take and then he wouldn't want to work on it anymore. But um, uh, you know he try he'd sit and listen to somebody explain. It. And the engineer is trying to fix something or something, and he'd sit there trying to explain to Leon how this 
you know, this doesn't fit this, and this is working. And then they'd look up, and Leon was just gone. He just vaporized because he just didn't want to get in that far into the weeds. You know, he doesn't get, you know, or Kim Fowley used to say the funniest thing, you know, don't give me the labor pains, just give me the baby. Like, just make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's quite a good line. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, he, you know, but he played live up until, up until he couldn't. You know, amazing. Literally, so I, I, you know, I, I mean, in a ma- I mean, getting that old. As a matter of fact, Willie just had his seventieth, 80th anniversary gig at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, and the only cover any any of the guest artists played was a song for you. And uh, I was telling Brian I was losing my mind because um, I don't read the LA Times all that often since I don't live there. Um, uh, but I saw a picture and it had a picture of Willie. It was Willie's 80th birthday celebration. It was a Hollywood ball. So I'm like, I got to check this out. And I think he did that because obviously Leon's absence, you know, was, was something that would have been very, very missed. And the song for you was the only song that anybody played that wasn't a Willie song. And, um, the, the, the pop critic in finger quotes of the LA times, wrote he didn't understand why they why uh what what is it he didn't how did how did he it wasn't he it was he got he credited it as a willie nelson song or something he got he got he didn't even he didn't even get the composer right of a song for you Blimey. a song for you yeah i i lost my mind because he, he calls himself a music critic it really pissed me off yes because because it was an honor idiot it was you know so i'm sure somebody you know wrote in about that little error junior um <laughs> but but uh yeah he, he uh, uh he i mean he's the, that's his job you have one job you have one job you know just you know come on get it right you know so I, but the point i was getting around to in my very long-winded gabby yaki way was to, to be that old and have all your friends gone. I mean, uh, you know, Robbie Robertson just passed away. Willie made nine records in one year, I read. Yes, he, he's like um, one of those reggae artists. They they were able to just, you know, yes, just go in a studio record it. I think they're just quite phenomenal, really. There must be something, yeah. It is I just saw that he put out a, blue, a bluegrass record, like today or something. You know, I mean, he's he he's just uh, he's the real deal, Willie Nelson. He's he's just a wonderful wonderful human being. I, I love that guy. He's great, and he's a great. Not to mention one of the greatest songwriters that have ever existed. But you know, he, he, I'm sure I'm sure. I mean, to have you know Leon gone, and to have them do that song really was touching to me, because nobody else did a cover. Nobody else did any anything but a Willie song. He was the only that was the only non Willie song that was performed on Willie's birthday, and I thought that meant a lot. Yes, amazing, amazing. Well, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for your time. And I've, I've, by the way, I really loved listening to your stories, well, all of them, but especially where you live in, you know, near the, in the Joshua Tree area. And um, yes, in such a spiritual, you know, and beautiful place. That's, you know, brings back so many fond memories of our trips to America, I have to say. So, um, yes, amazing. 
When was the first time, the first year you came over to visit America? Well, it was bizarrely. It was um, the month after two thousand and one, and that's when we flew in. We had to go to New England and then flew on to New Mexico, and that's when we visited that um, Giorgio O'Keefe Museum, and then we came back again and we. Oh. Fl- and then flew into Vegas and then would take a car. We'd we'd either do, you know, like a couple of the national parks and then we did, you know, places like I mentioned at the start, like White Sands and, yeah, you know, Monument Valley and Zion Park and, um, yeah, and, and just, yeah, we're obsessed with landscapes, you know. I just found those landscapes absolutely stunning and, um, you know, went to ma- some crater in the deserts where, you know, a, probably a meteor, meteor sort of hit and probably did some massive damage to the planet. But, um, yeah, it was good. So, um, yeah, the last time we came, it was we, we visited the Joshua Tree and, um, yeah, that came down and had our gong bath. That was 2019. So there you go. That's really cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you did that because it's it's a it's a it's a magic place. It's one of my favorite places in the world. We did we did some playing in there, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great place. You have the little the little altar where people send their little things. I I just I I love that place. One of my favorite places on the planet actually is the Integratron. It's really cool. I'm yeah. glad you went. Oh God, it's stunning. But look, thank you ever so much for this. It's amazing. And look, thank you. And it's been wonderful. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I was really nervous because I haven't done this in a long time, and I can tend to get sidetracked and stuff. So um, I, I relatively stuck on 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 point, I believe, more <laughs> or less. <laughs> it was amazing. Look, well, look, take care and love to, love to your horses. Do you have any dogs anymore? Thank or, you. Or just horses? I have three dogs. I have three dogs. Yes. Excellent. They're sitting here right now. Does anybody? And I've got a. I've got a Huh. I was going to say, do do people have cats in America? Do you have cats? Oh, everybody. There's a lot of cat freaks in America for sure. Um, out here in the desert, um, they call them coyote candy. Uh, so we, we, not not a lot of people. You're not. You know, it's 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 risky to let your. It's risky to have you know domestic animals out here in the desert anyway because they don't belong out here and. Uh, you'll hear the coyotes at night tearing stuff apart. You know, it's it's, it's an eerie sound. I'll tell you, and uh, so so cats are something that not as many people have out here um, as you think. Uh, but you know, old ladies that are in you know housebound and stuff like that, you know, problem you know do. But um, not no, nobody I know. Uh, well, no no nobody I know has a cat. But yeah, there are there are plenty of cats out here. Plenty of cats. Excellent. Well, look, I hope you have a beautiful day. And thanks again for this. Thank you. Okay, take care there. And um, yes, I'll keep in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Jeanette Napolitano talking about her life in music, creativity and much more. Well, you just heard the interview, so obviously you know what we spoke about. I hope. Anyway, um, this has been The C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.